Well, we've been working our way through the book of Proverbs thematically, uh, working various themes as they unfold. Uh, this is our third, third theme, so we've got a ways to go. The, the Proverbs has a lot of wisdom, little pithy uh, statements about how to live wise in a very unwise world. Uh, we spent some time with the first theme, was the fear of God, and then we went into um, a predominant theme throughout uh, the Proverbs, and that is our speech. And so we noticed uh, and we spent some time seeing the uh, danger of having a loose tongue and having a tongue that was uncontrolled. And now we've moved into another dominant theme in the book of Proverbs, and that is pride. Pride. This is the last night uh, we're going to be in pride. Uh, it certainly isn't the last night that we're going to deal with pride. Uh, that will continue on till we get to heaven. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we're going to move on from pride, conclude tonight, and then we're going to go, Lord willing, next Sunday night, we're going to go to the opposite and look in Proverbs at what the Bible has to say, what wise Solomon has to say about the opposite of pride, which is humility. And so we'll look at a positive, though often an elusive trait or virtue, humility. And I just want to make a side note in reminding you what I said last week is that the chief virtue in the Bible is not love. It is humility. Because uh, if you get humility, then you're going to get love. And so we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. But tonight, uh, we're going to conclude on pride. pride. And what we're going to look at uh, is by way of warning. We want to see what the consequences, and I believe there's four. Four consequences. It could have been expanded to more. But there's four severe consequences that will happen to a life of a person, either a Christian or a non-Christian, uh, if pride goes unchecked. If you allow pride to uh, remain within and you don't do battle against pride, uh, it will wreak uh, severe consequences in your life. It may not be tonight, uh, but it is inevitable. And as we mentioned, pride is that coat of many colors. It is Joseph. It, it has its manifestation in so many ways. And so I just want to do a quick review. Um, and first of all, we, we began by looking at the definition of pride. The definition of pride. And pride in its, in its rudimentary meaning, it's a swelling or a lifting up. It's an arrogance or a conceit of having an unhealthy, elevated view of yourself. If you really want to get a handle on pride, you ask yourself, how do you see yourself before God? If you don't see yourself as a totally depraved sinner in need of grace, then you're likely suffering from a pride issue. Because pride is that. It's an unhealthy, self-deceived, elevated identity of yourself. And then we also looked at pride as it was illustrated. And we noticed three uh, case studies in the Bible of pride. Two had a good ending, one did not. Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to revisit Nebuchadnezzar briefly tonight. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, his pride was attacked by the Lord and had a good ending. Uh, Peter also was attacked by pride. And Peter is an example in many ways but one way in regards to pride is, is the self-deception of pride. And we'll look at that tonight briefly too. Is that pride is so self-deceiving. Is that when Peter looked at the Lord Jesus and said, I'll never deny you, that was pride and he didn't even know it. That's how dangerous pride is. You know, it's like a snake in the grass that you can't see. And so Peter had a good ending though. We find him repenting and being restored and he became the humble foot-washing servant. Uh, of the Lord. And then we also saw the warning in Herod. Herod, he had a bad ending, and we'll see another bad ending tonight in Haman if pride goes unchecked. So that was pride defined, pride illustrated, and then we looked at the bad fruit of pride. What are some of the bad fruit of pride? And this was pretty uh, graphic also. First, uh, the bad fruit of pride is it created the devil. 
It created the devil. From Ezekiel 28 to Isaiah 14, we see that the devil was a discontented, angelic being. He wasn't satisfied with uh, what he had or what he was. That's always the fruit of pride, discontent. And so he was discontented. Uh, He elevated himself and says, I will be like God, I will be like. And, And the Lord said, no, you will not. So pride created the devil. Secondly, pride created sinful independence. The fall, the garden, the fall of man was a disobedience, but it was a disobedience that was rooted in man's desire to be like the devil, and that was to be like God, and that was how the devil approached Eve. Uh, she ate the fruit, her husband ate the fruit, and thus uh, the catastrophic events of, of independence come into the human experience, and we must always remember, beloved, that you and I were never created to be de- independent. We were created to be dependent upon the living God uh, through his son, the Lord Jesus. The fourth, uh, I'm sorry, the third fruit that we saw from pride was that it robs God of his glory, is that pride is all about self. Pride is all about I, me, my, and mine. And that with that focus on self, instead of us being God's reflectors of his glory, we become seekers of glory. And that's what pride will do. And the fourth bad fruit we saw in pride is that it's the chief tactic that the devil uses even today. In the lives of believers, no less. Paul warns Timothy not to put uh, a leader, a young man, or a conceited, a a person that's a novice in the position of leadership because they'll be exalted with pride and the fall will be deep and wide. So Satan used the chief tactic against believers. Many believers are estranged with other believers and the core issue, as we will look at tonight, is pride. Then we looked into the third thing about pride, the third thing, and that is what is the Lord's attitude against pride and what does he do about it? And the first thing we saw, as we see in Proverbs 6, 16, the Lord hates it. The Lord hates it. There's two strong words in verse 16 that indicate the Lord's attitude towards pride. The first one is hate, which means to have an intense aversion. It is unwilling to put up with it. God is intolerant of pride. And secondly, the word abomination. Abomination means to abhor, means to loathe something that causes great disgust. And that, again, is God's attitude towards pride. And then we saw also um, what he does as a result of the attitude. He declares pride his enemy. Twice we find in the New Testament, the epistle of James and Peter, 1 Peter, is a God opposes the pride, the proud. And that in regards to relationship with believers, God will, appear, um, God will appear to you as an adversary if you're rooted in pride. He will not be your adversary because as we saw this morning, we are gloriously justified in Christ. Uh, but that does not mean he will not come to you with a perceived adversarial role uh, if you persist in pride. And then we also noted that the Lord's action against pride is he will attack pride. Uh, he, will not, uh, he will not leave pride uh, alone. He will attack it. Uh, he tears it down. Um, and we saw the example in the Apostle Paul is that he gave him the thorn in the flesh for the purpose of keeping his pride down. And we must understand that God attacking our pride is not a sign of his displeasure. It is a sign of his love. As he knows the devastating uh, nature of pride. He knows what it does to, uh, to us. It created the devil. It created the fall. And so he will go to no, he will spare us no pain in eradicating or at least suppressing uh, the ugly sin of pride in our lives. And so tonight we wanted to look at the final thing in pride and we want to look at its consequences. Its consequences. Let's begin with Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. Now these are very serious consequences. And as I said, it may not be manifested now, but it is inevitable that even as God's children, if we don't deal with pride, God will deal with us. 
and because of what it does to uh, the gospel, what it does to uh, the church, what it does in relationships, is God is very aggressive towards his children, ensuring pride does not go unchecked. Now, you can rebel against that. Uh, There are many relationships, sadly, that remain unreconciled because of pride. And what you will see is the chastisement of the Lord in forms of no peace, no joy, no enjoyment of Him. And those are rooted in pride that digs deep inside and says, I will not reconcile, I wasn't wrong, I will dig in, and God will say, then I will chastise you and I will keep you from enjoying me as you could. So then the first thing we note there, Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. When pride comes, there comes disgrace. In Proverbs 29, 23, you don't need to turn to it. There's another reference uh, towards this. It said, one's pride will bring him low. One's pride will bring him, bring him low. If you and I, as believers, do not check pride, and if we do not go all-out warfare against pride and seek to cultivate the, the chief virtue of humility, it will bring disgrace into our lives. It will bring dishonor, it will bring shame, and it will bring embarrassment. Disgrace in Proverbs 11.2, it translates social failure. Be a person who has to be recognized. Be a person who must seek their own will. Be a person, even in Christian service and in Christian circles, if you seek to draw attention to yourself, if you seek recognition, if you seek affirmation, that is a subtle form of pride, and it will bring disembarrassment and dishonor to you. Look at Luke chapter 11, I'm sorry, Luke 14, Luke 14, verse 7. The very opposite of the servant of the Lord is not to seek any recognition. As I mentioned last week, the pronouns I, me, my, and mine have got to go away in the Christian experience. There's nothing in the Christian experience. There's nothing about ourselves. It's all the crucified with Christ's life, raised with Christ, so that we actually find ourselves obliterated living exclusively for the cause of the gospel and the good of others. But if you seek pride, or I should seek, if you seek recognition, if you seek to have a voice, if you seek to voice an opinion, those are subtle, uh, subtle displays of pride, though you may not know it, and it will bring disgrace, it will bring dishonor, because God will not share glory, nor will he share affirmation with anybody but himself. Luke chapter 14, verse 7. Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. That's pride. A seeking of a public recognition. A seeking of a public affirmation. He's saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor. We, can, we could just paraphrase Jesus saying, he says, don't seek to sit at the head table. Don't seek to put yourself in a position of elevation. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you you begin with shame. Take that back to Proverbs. Solomon said, when pride comes, then comes social failure. How embarrassing would it be in a public arena to have taken the high seat and then the host or hostess comes and says, oh, by the way, that's not for you. Would you please get up and go to the back of the bus? There's an embarrassment about that. And beloved, it's one thing to be humiliated. It's another thing to develop humility. It's not the same. Public humiliation is an attack on pride that doesn't eradicate pride. It actually deepens pride. And Jesus said, then you, when you, you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go sit in the lowest place. 
John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he said, He that is so low need fear no fall. That's a wonderful quote. He that is so low need fear no fall. There's nowhere to go. So if you're seated in the back seat of the bus, so to speak, then you've got nowhere to go but up. And you will safeguard yourself from dishonor and from shame and from embarrassment. And Jesus said, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to your, to your friend, move up higher. One of the most important things you can do as a Christian, and especially in Christian service, do not bring attention to yourself. Do not draw attention to yourself. Do not seek to jockey in a position. Now, I know that I'm saying this to a crowd that knows that. But there's a subtlety of pride that even seeks to justify self-defense. That seeks to justify saying or having a voice. Let us understand the humility of Christ in this. Let us understand the one who emptied himself and made himself lowly as the servant of servants, never seeking the high place, and he certainly was the one who deserved the high place. Jesus warns us in this parable that pride, exalting oneself in public, will lead to public shame. And I think in order to see just how, how devastating this is, go back to Genesis chapter 3. When we looked at Genesis chapter 3, I want you to look at verse 6 with me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When we looked at the sin in the garden, we note that pride brought forth the spirit of independence. That Eve listened to the devil, says, you shall be like gods, basically, knowing good and evil. She bought into the lie. Sin entered the world, and the world has been a wreck ever since. And what we have, though, in Genesis 3, 6 through 10, I want you to see... This pride that causes embarrassment. I want you to see how the shame that what pride does, the fruit of shame, the fruit of pride, all these things that we see that they didn't experience before now become the human experience. And you and I experience these all the time. This is what pride will do in your life. If you don't check it, this is what's going to happen. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes... And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, just like the devil in Ezekiel and Isaiah. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then their eyes of, uh, the eyes of both were opened. That's one thing. Opened. But opened not in a good way. And they knew that they were naked. There's the second word, naked. And they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his woman hid, there's another word, hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. All those words opened, they were innocent and now they became defiled. Opened, naked, Hid, hide, afraid, all those are the bad, or I should say, the consequences of pride. Every one of us go through the embarrassment of life wanting to hide, wanting to, or being afraid. Those are all the fruits of shame. Edward Welch, in his book, Shame Interrupted, said this, quote, Hiding, covering up, self-protection, feeling exposed, these are all telltale signs of shame, end quote. And shame is a result of pride seeking to exalt yourself and putting yourself in a place you shouldn't be. And Solomon says, be careful. Whoever promotes yourself, you will be brought low, and social failure is inevitable. 
Here's the second consequence of pride unchecked. Look at Proverbs 13.10. And this may be the, the one of the saddest of all. Not only will we be disgraced, dishonored, shamed, embarrassed, but the second consequence from unchecked pride, it creates strife in relationships. It creates strife in relationships. Proverbs 13.10 13, says, By insolence or by pride comes nothing but strife. I like the Geneva and the King James translations on that. The ESV doesn't have the, uh, the only. The King James and the uh, Gen- Geneva says, Only by pride. Only by pride. Showing that the ultimate source of strife then is pride. And if you really peel that onion back, so to speak, it is true. The word strife means bitter conflict, heated, often violent quarrels, scuffles, or brawls. Pride has been called the unsociable vice. I thought about that term, unsociable vice. And let me ask you a question. Who do you like to be around most? Do you like to be in conversations or meetings where people talk about themselves? Or people, people are always drawing attention to themselves? Of course you don't. You don't want to be around those type of people. And you certainly don't want to be one of those people. Is Christians, the very antithesis of what we are is that. Is that we are to be people who are consumed with Jesus, consumed with Christ. And when he's not the center, and this is sad the case in nearly every, certainly counseling sessions I have, and I see it uh, at times in my own life, is that every time there's strife in any type of relationship, I don't believe it's simplistic to say pride is at the the root core of it. Because pride says, is that I will not forgive you. Pride says I will not be reconciled. Pride says I have my rights. Pride says I must be heard. Pride says that it is really all about me. And whenever that occurs in a marriage, in a church, even in the workplace, Strife is just rampant. Disunity occurs. C.S. Lewis has said, quote, Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense, end quote. When we start looking at the virtue of humility, I become more and more convinced that the more that we seek the Christ-like quality of humility, the more that there will not be any relationships that cannot be reconciled. Humility is, is, the, is the chief virtue, not only to know love, but humility is what allows us to get along. Humility says, I defer to you. Humility says, I, I put your interests above mine. Pride says, I don't defer to you, I step on you. Pride says, it's not about your interests, it's about my interest. And when pride starts to go unchecked in the life of the Christian, you know what happens? Your joy is gone. Your peace is gone. The awareness of Christ's presence is gone. And you can have all the outward trappings of being a Christian, be faithful in service, be faithful to the church, and deep down inside, though, you are lacking the reality of a felt Christ. Is you don't have the reality of the living Jesus. Because he becomes your adversary in an, in an attacking way, opposing your pride. And he will check you. And we see that this strife in relationships is always because of pride. Look at Matthew chapter 20. I have found that when I'm in an unreconciled situation, if I really, really look back on it, I've either been offended and I don't want to reconcile, or I, have, I harbor this bitterness because I've been wronged. 
And humility says, no matter what wrong I've been, no matter how much I've been wronged, no matter how right I may be, humility says, I'll defer to the good of the other. And I think the way to really get a hold of that is constantly look, whenever you're in any type of conflict, constantly look at the Last Supper, constantly look at the, at the Passover, and watch Jesus wash feet. And he goes around to all those disciples. I've said this a lot to you because I think it's so important. If you really want to get a hold of how to, to handle humility and how to handle criticism and how to handle when people offend you, is that look at Jesus, not only wash Peter's feet, but watch him wash Judas's feet. That will level any pride that you may have. And that will allow you to absorb the blows when people wrongly uh, talk of you or criticize you. And in the case of the disciples, look at the strife that occurred with them because of pride. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. It sounds really good. She's very reverent, right? Well, she's about to jockey for position for her boys. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. How do you think the other disciples felt? Mom comes to the scene, takes the sons of thunder and says, listen, I'm going to put a good word in you with Jesus. I'm going to separate you from the, I'm going to separate my boys from the other guys. I'm going to jockey for a good position for you. How do you think these guys are feeling? You're going to see how these guys felt. Now remember, these are the, this is the band that's going to change the world. And he said to her, and he said, okay, say the two sons may say, okay, Jesus, verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able, that's pride. Anytime that you think you can in a spiritual context, that's pride. Do you know what we can do spiritually? Absolutely nothing. We can't even think one spiritual thought without the Spirit of God. We are so totally dependent upon grace, and that is a wonderful place to be. And so they're saying, we're able. It sounds like Peter, he says, Lord, I'll never deny you. So yeah, we're able. We can handle this. That's pride. And now look what happens. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to set up my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now look what pride does. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Or we could say, when the ten heard it, strife abounded among them. Guys, how are you going to change the world? And how are you going to have a message of unity and of humility when you're already at strife with one another? You're already, you're already attacking one another. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That's humility. And whoever would be first among you, back of the bus, must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, there's another example of this. In Luke 22, I'll read it to you. Luke 22, 24 says, A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Guys, don't you get it? But before you say that, we need to ask ourselves, do we get it? Do we understand the disaster that pride does in relationships. Solomon says, by pride, by pride comes strife. And if the world sees a church or sees Christian laborers in strife with one another, then we have just put a tremendous blemish on the gospel. We have put a blemish on the message of Christ 
because his message is one of peace, one of unity, one of oneness. And so for his own that claim to know him, to harbor pride that produces strife in relationships draws us as far away from him as we possibly can. And that's one of the consequences of pride. Arguments cease. Strive, strife is starved when the fuel of pride is removed. Take away the fuel source from anything and it dies out. And the fuel source of strife is pride. May God help us to see our, our personal responsibility to never be a cause of strife. And the way you do that is you learn to forget yourself. You truly learn to forget yourself. We truly learn to live out what we saw this morning, and that is our justification by faith in Christ, living out our union with Christ. So the first thing we see then, the the, the devastating consequences of pride, is it it brings us low, it it brings disgrace, dishonor, shame. Secondly, it creates strife in relationships. Now look at Proverbs 16, 18. Here's a third consequence of pride. It leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. Twice we find in the, in the Proverbs, Solomon writes, before you're destroyed, pride comes. So pride is like what sets, sets the table. And this is where I said that God will inevitably handle pride in his children. It says pride goes before destruction. In Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, a man's heart is, is prideful or haunty. The word destruction is total. It means termination of something. It means to destroy something to the point is it cannot be repaired or no longer exist. This is what pride, this is how God will deal with pride. Certainly in the unsaved, but also in his children. And the prime example of the devastation, even unto death, of pride is found in the wicked man named Haman. Look at Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. But I also want us to look at Nebuchadnezzar again and see the fruit when God destroys his, his own children in regards to their pride. What, what, what is the fruit that comes out of that? But look at Esther chapter 5. You're familiar with the story. Verse 9 of Esther 5. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, now Haman's all happy because he gets to, he gets to uh, um, do the Holocaust against the Jews. He's all happy now because he's so, he is so jealous of Mordecai. He's so ate up with pride, as we see, that even though he's going to be able to do this, this one guy is rubbing him so wrong that he's not going to be happy until Mordecai is exterminated. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless... Haman restrained himself, and he went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Now, I want you to imagine setting at this conversation, and what Haman's about to say. You are getting to see the sickening expression of pride. I mean, who would want to sit around someone that talks like this? And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotion which the king had honored him, how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together, but by her together with the king. He goes on and on and on. I've done this, I've done this, I've accomplished this. You know what? People really don't want to hear that. 
People don't want to hear all your accomplishments. I mean, I, I, maybe it's a disillusion, but we really don't. And Haman just goes on and on of all the things that he had accomplished. He certainly didn't know the truth that what you have, you've received. You've never done anything. That's a lesson within ourselves. When you're with people, don't talk about yourself. When you're with people, don't exalt yourself. Don't bring all the things that you've done. Don't look at all the accomplishments you've done. Let that be sorted out, the judgment seat of Christ. Let him, the ultimate one, give you the greatest affirmation. And for Christians to draw attention to themselves, that makes us so much like the world. And it's a subtle expression of pride. We don't need to do that. We got a king who loves us and who affirms us. And isn't it going to be great to hear from him someday, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If you want your rewards now, then draw attention to yourself, but you will forfeit those at the judgment seat of Christ. Haman, wicked Haman, draws attention to himself. Now go to chapter, um, move ahead to Esther chapter 7 and verse 1. Here's what happens to the prideful man. Here is the fulfillment of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, verse 1. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. I wonder if Haman's starting to get that sick feeling inside. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asarerus said to the queen, Who is he? And where is he? Who dared to do this? Now you know that he is just, Haman is sweating bullets. And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. Haman, pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction, wicked man. You draw attention to yourself, and God will deal with your pride. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, rightly so. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my house? And the word left the mouth of the king. They covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the aloes that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words say the king is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him there. So they hanged Haman. On the, king, on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Beloved, don't let pride go unchecked in your life. This is an extreme example of how God dealt with a wicked man. But don't think for a second that if you're his child, that God's going to let pride go unchecked in your life. He won't. Your use for the kingdom will be directly proportionate to how much you allow him to break you from the sin of pride. You want to be used mightily and wide to let him do that hard, deep work inside of you of removing your pride. You want to have little influence, little enjoyment of the Lord Jesus? Then draw attention to yourself. Exalt yourself in your giftedness. Exalt yourself in your talents. Defend yourself. And watch how small your influence really is. 
Watch how God will not use you to the level that he wants to. That's not pragmatism. That's the reality of God dealing with pride in his people. But take a look what happens, though, when pride is destroyed in a person who responds correctly. Look at Daniel chapter 4. Haman, pride comes before destruction, and he's, he's hanged. Nebuchadnezzar, pride comes before destruction. But what was destroyed in Nebuchadnezzar was replaced by the greatest experiences you could ever have. So in a real sense, that though Haman was physically destroyed and ultimately eternally destroyed in separation from God, in a very real sense, that as God's children, he will destroy us. Jesus says, unless a a grain of wheat die and go into the ground, it can't bear fruit. Unless you and I learn to be crucified with Christ daily, a daily death, and Paul did say, I die daily. Unless we learn to be destroyed daily, to where you and I can actually say, it's nevertheless I, it's not I that lives, but Christ lives within me. Until we can get to that point with confidence, we can say, I am crucified with Christ. Self-interest no longer interests me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. When we get to that point, then we're going to enjoy the fruit of the destruction work that God did in us to get rid of the pride. And know what, what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4, verse 34. Note the fruit of the destruction work in Nebuchadnezzar. He knows his God like he never knew before. And beloved, that's the greatest work of destruction by God in your life. He wants to destroy your pride so that you'll get a proper awareness of who God is. He wants to destroy your pride so that you'll know him in ways you never could have known him any other way. God not only opposes the proud, God will not reveal himself to the proud. Remember what Isaiah says? The Lord says, this is the one that I will look upon. This is the one that I will commune with. This is the one that I will reveal myself to. This is the one that I will have fellowship. The one who is broken in spirit, contrite in heart, and trembles at my word. That is the holistic understanding of the humble person. Even the destroyed person. And so Nebuchadnezzar was destroyed. And look at verse 34 of Daniel 4. And look at the wonderful wonderful experience and knowledge of God that Nebuchadnezzar got because he was dealt with in his pride. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Number one, he had a greater appreciation for the eternality of God. He understood he dealt with an eternal God. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Next, he learns of God's sovereignty. An everlasting dominion. He learned of his sovereignty. Already you see the fruit of his pride being destroyed. He understood more the eternality of God. He experienced more the sovereignty of God. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. What does he learn about God there? He learns about his transcendence. His separation from his creatures. And beloved, that's one of the most important truths you and I can learn, you know, as a church, as an individual, the transcendent nature of God. He is not like us. He is separate from us. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that when he says, look at my kingdom, look at all the stuff I got. But now he gets destroyed 
The pride was, was destroyed, and he saw God's eternality. He saw God's sovereignty. He saw God's transcendence. He goes on. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, now he sees the supremacy of God. He said, there's none like him. There's no rivals. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. What else does Nebuchadnezzar discover about his God? His justice, his power. And he says, and he concludes his testimony of the destructive work of his life by saying, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So there is a severe consequence of unchecked pride in the life of the wicked. They will experience Haman. But in the life of the believer is that we too will experience destruction, but it has a good effect. It can produce within us a greater understanding of the attributes of God. Because when you're humbled by God, He will reveal Himself to you in ways that you've never seen Him before. You won't talk about God, you'll talk about knowing God. Your experience will not be, I'm talking about the theology of God and I'm not rattling off all the attributes of God. I'm telling you about the God that I know. I'm telling you about the God who's revealed his eternality to me. I'm telling you about the God who's revealed his justice, his mercy, his kindness, his sovereignty. Let the work of destruction do that to you. And finally, look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 11. We'll close with this. This is the fourth consequence of pride and the most dangerous. Unchecked pride will bring disgrace and shame into your life. Unchecked pride will cause strife in all your relationships. Unchecked pride will lead to destruction. As a believer, let us do its good work of destruction. And finally, pride produces self-deception. Self-deception. Understand what I'm going to say here. It's, the greatest form of deception is not, in the world is not the blinding of the devil. It certainly is a deception in the lives of the unbeliever. The greatest form of, se- of deception is self-deception. James tells us, Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving your own selves. I think that should make us so shaken our boots, so to speak, is understanding how easy we can be self-deceived. How easy we can be self-deceived, and pride will do that. Pride will convince you you're better than you are. Pride will put in you this, this sense of spirituality that doesn't measure up to Scripture. And look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 11. Now, this is not Solomon. This is Agor. And it's interesting because it has a feel of Ecclesiastes. Is he's passing through generations. Proverbs 30, verse 11. These are those, or these are those in a generation who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those, or a generation, who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. There are those, a generation, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. Verse 14, there are those in a generation whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. So the writer of this proverb, he takes, a, he takes an observant. He's observing four generations. Four generations. In the first generation, he sees an overbreaking of the fifth command in regards to honoring parents. The following generation is deceived by self-righteousness. Verse 12. 
And the third generation that he's deserving is the one that we're of interest in tonight. And that is he's identifying those who, who are lofty in their own eyes or who are full of pride. And this is self-deception. He said, there are those, how lofty are they in their own eyes? How high their eyelids lift? Now, how do you know if you're suffering from the pride of self-deception? One way, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot of scriptures here, but one way is it how you view another Christian when they sin or when they fall. Have you ever been tempted when you see someone fall, you look at them and you say, subtly perhaps, I would never do that. How could they do that? How could they possibly do that? They're Christians. How could they do that? You know what that is? That's Proverbs 30, verse 13. That's a lofty look because you know what that proves? That you really don't understand that you and I are capable, even as Christians, to commit any sin under the sun. There's not a single sin that I am not incapable of committing. And when I start looking at other Christians, or I see I'm being critical of other Christians, I have just revealed that I have a pride issue. And remember, pride comes before destruction. And so the great, the, the great thing that you and I have to do, is, which is really the key verse in Proverbs, where it says, guard your heart with all diligence, because out of it are the issues of life. We have two examples. We're not going to look to it. We have two examples. The Pharisees caught, uh, who caught the woman in adultery. Talk about self-deception. They drag this, this, this woman out, and they lay her in public shame. And they had the audacity to point at her sin and continue to point at her sin in the very presence of the God of all creation. They were as guilty as the sin that she committed. In many ways, they probably did in their mind. And yet these guys were so deceived, so bent on trying to deceive Jesus, that they were lost in their own pride and their own self-deception. And then we had the same thing with the tax, co- the, the, uh, um, the tax guy and the Pharisees. Remember the tax collector? The Pharisee looks at that uh, and says, I thank God I'm not like this guy. I'm not like them. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And yes, you were. Just take me through your mind's eye for one hour and everything you said you weren't, you committed at least in your mind. These Pharisees were so deceived. And beloved, you and I can be so deceived by pride. Let it, don't give yourself a pass. Just because you don't do something doesn't mean you're not guilty of it. Your thoughts are speech in God's eyes. My thoughts are just the same as acts. And these guys were so self-deceived that it was all about the external, and that's what pride will do. Pride will, will allow you to look at your Christianity and allow you to give yourself a pass because you don't do what other people do, or you do what other people do, and you find yourself in an external pharisaical lifestyle, and you think it's okay. That's not an indictment on you. I'm looking at the guy in the mirror, and pride will say, you know what? I got this spiritual life down pretty good. I really do understand this. One thing you will know as you grow in grace, and the more that you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the less you really, you'll know more and more how much you don't know. The more you grow in grace, the more you're going to understand how much you don't know, and you're going to be a lot slower in talking about the things you think you know. You're going to find yourself that God gave me two ears and one tongue for a reason. I'm to listen far more than I am to talk. And so the consequences of pride, beloved, we just did it four or five weeks of pride, and we're going to move on. But the consequences of pride are very severe. It will embarrass you. It will bring shame into your life. 
it will cause strife in all your relationships. Don't dig your heels in in a self-righteousness of pride and refuse to reconcile with someone, even if you did anything wrong. And if someone did you wrong, you know what you need to do? You just need to forgive them. And you don't even need to bring it up. There are some things in our relationships with each other we just got to let go. We really do. Jesus does that. I mean, really, think about I'm going to fail you as your pastor. I told you that. I have in the past. I will. If I haven't today, I'm going to tomorrow. I'm going to fail you. And I need you just to know, let's, let's let some things go. Because I'm not trying to fail you on purpose. But I'm still, I still suffer from pride. I still suffer from sin like you do. There are things in our relationship you just got to let go. Because if we don't, then that's all we're going to get done is being the sin police in each other's lives. And that's pride. So pride will lead to destruction, pride will lead to strife, pride will lead to shame, and finally pride will lead to self-deception. May God help us as we seek to cultivate humility so that we can be safeguarded against this ugly, ugly sin that made the devil the devil and created the fall that required us to have a Savior. And I'll close with this. The only thing that you can do and the only thing that we can possibly do to defeat pride in our life is to be tethered to the cross of Christ. It's only the gospel that destroys pride. There's nothing else. Not moral uh, reformation, not new behavior. The only thing that kills pride is a heart transformation that comes from beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. May God help us to develop the Christ-like humility that will do the work of removing pride and exalting the humble Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us so much that you won't, let, you won't let pride go unchecked in our lives. May we be very mindful of the destructive nature of pride and may we truly put the interests of others ahead of our own. May we learn not to uh, the whole short accounts with one another. Just some things, just let it go. And may we also, Father, follow the, the example of Christ, the ever-compassionate one, the humble one. And may we learn to do battle against pride every day of our life that Christ would be exalted, that he wouldn't be our opposer, but he would be one that we're in fellowship with and showing the world the reality of who he is. So we thank you, Father, for the Lord's Day. We thank you for the grace of being with each other. May we remember these things and apply them to our life. In Jesus' name, amen.